Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. Their shovels pierced the dirt as their nervous energy filled the night air. The moonlight overhead emitted just enough light to work, but the darkness provided a cloak of secrecy. The four men worked expeditiously and didn't speak much as they dug. They didn't have time for small talk. They had a job to do. With each thrust of the shovel, they grew more anxious about what lie beneath the clay-like soil. Shovel by shovel, they dug deeper into the ground. And then, they hit something hard. One of the men dusted away mounds of dirt with his hands that were now blistered from the hours of digging. This is what they had been searching for an ornate, well-designed coffin. They used a handmade knife to pry it open and peered inside. And there it was, the body of one of Portland's most prominent businessmen. These grave robbers were about to use his corpse to make a fortune. Well, at least, that's what they had hoped. It's too bad they made a fatal error when forging their getaway plan. I'm Ashley Korslin, and this is Wicked West. Episode 4, The Grave Robbing Ghouls. In the late 1800s, William Sargent Ladd was a name synonymous with wealth, success, and notoriety. His influence in Portland, Oregon was ubiquitous. One of the really early important people in Portland's history. Carrie Timchuk with the Oregon Historical Society describes Ladd as industrious, even at a young age. Born in Vermont, uh, came here as a 25-year-old in 1851. And over time, he would become involved in everything in Portland and in Oregon. Uh, manufacturing, transportation, railroads, he invested in everything. Ladd was born in 1826 to an affluent physician father and mother from a legacy New England family. He moved to New Hampshire as a child, and as he got older, decided he didn't want handouts from his parents. He wanted to pave his own way. Instead of going to college, Ladd honed his skills as a teacher and farm and freight worker. He then headed west, where he stayed a short while in California, before setting his sights on Oregon. At the time, Portland was the largest settlement in the Pacific Northwest, home to some 900 people. Ladd was just 24 when he arrived with little to his name. He could barely afford a new pair of shoes. But he was assiduous and seemed to succeed rather quickly. He had brought with him a small supply of wine and liquor. He had a supply of liquor with him, or had an ability to get a supply of liquor when he came out here in 1851 and sold it, and used the profits from that to acquire more goods, which he sold as a merchant. And then he used that money to continue to expand. 
As an appetite for alcohol began to build in the area, Ladd parlayed his initial earnings into a bundle of cash. After a year of consigning alcohol and other goods, he earned enough capital to establish his own storefront. Ladd then persuaded an old schoolmate to go into business with him, and they expanded their inventory. Sales grew exponentially, and so did their profits. But Ladd was astute and knew what riches lie ahead in helping the city of Portland expand. Uh, Portland was, you know, A, there was, of course, timber. We were a huge timber uh, community back then. That's why it built Portland. Uh, agriculture would have been big. But then getting into uh, some, some manufacturing, transportation, building the railroad, um, and also servicing service industries. Ladd began investing in almost everything in the town's manufacturing and industrial sectors. Eventually, he would become the, the founder of the first bank in Portland, the Ladd and Tilton Bank, and then would become the Ladd and Bush Bank in Salem, which still exists today, uh, being the, the founder and owner of the largest bank in Portland. You can imagine he had a hand in everything. And the bank was the center of the community. I mean, it loaned money to, to businesses starting out, uh, or wanting to expand. Uh, it was where people uh, would go to for, for, for help. And if you had a mortgage, uh, you know, the bank often held that. Uh, he was uh, very successful. From business to politics, Ladd kept adding to his resume. At just 27 years old, he became the youngest mayor in Portland history. He oversaw the enactment of 42 ordinances in his first term, far more than any of his predecessors. He was mayor for, for one, a two-year term and then came back again, was asked to come back several years later, and uh, the mayor's spot had been left open, I think, by a death or resignation. So he was asked to, to fill that spot again for a year, which he did. So he was mayor twice in Portland. He was just, you know, he was the man about town. He was one of Portland's leading citizens for a long, long time. In the years that followed, Ladd helped found the Oregon Iron Company, Oregon Central Railroad Company, Portland Flour Mills, and the Portland Hotel. He created a real estate empire, developing Ladd's Edition in Southeast Portland, a 128-acre neighborhood that was known as Oregon's first planned community. He also helped acquire the land to establish the historic Riverview Cemetery, bordering the city's renowned waterfront. On a personal level, Ladd was described as unassuming, kind, and extremely philanthropic. One article said his word was as good as another man's bond. He and his wife Caroline often donated large sums of money to noteworthy causes and charitable organizations. Their congeniality and warmth earned them respect and adoration from people in town. It was regarded as a great marriage, and she was involved as well-to-do women were then with various you know, children's and women's uh, societies and organizations and do-good societies, and they were uh, much, much admired here in Portland. Parents of five children, the couple were strong advocates for libraries and public schools. Old articles show Ladd was a pioneering contributor to the Portland Library Fund. He also endowed scholarships at several major colleges and universities. The lads were commended for their generosity and what they did for their community. 
life was good, notoriety, social status, and, of course, a massive fortune. They were regularly written about by local newspapers, the focus often centering on Ladd's enormous estate. So they would have been written about in all the papers. Oh, Everybody knew who so. they were. Everybody knew they were. Everyone absolutely. knew they had money. Everyone knew they had money. His fortune was somewhere between five and 10 million, uh, which would be, in today's money, between 150 and 250 million. So he was very, very wealthy for his time. Very wealthy, with a reputation for being a ruthless and aggressive businessman, strict about the debts owed to him. Sure, Ladd was respected by many and did a fair amount of tithing, but not everyone shared the same fondness for the real estate baron. As the head of a successful bank, Ladd was known for his merciless business dealings. If you didn't pay your mortgage, you would stand to lose your property. He didn't get to be worth $150 million in today's money by rolling over and letting people pat his tummy. He was, he was known to be a very shrewd businessman, and again, and lived by the, the rules. If you, if you did not pay your mortgage, then, then the bank would foreclose. This practice allowed Ladd to seize thousands of acres of real estate across the city, only adding to his empire. But it also garnered him plenty of enemies. By the time William Ladd reached his 60s, he began to suffer from paralysis in his legs. Still, he carried on with his enterprises. He did his best not to let his health issues impact his dogged and determined approach to business. But on January 6th of 1893, when Ladd was just 66 years old, he died. At the time of his death, he was considered to be the wealthiest person in the Northwest. At the onset of the news of his passing, it seemed the entire town went into mourning. People paid tributes to the man who helped develop the very city they loved so dearly. Without Ladd, Portland would have been a far different place. While grieving, Ladd's family wore black for weeks, if not months, as a ceremonial statement. After the funeral, Ladd was taken to his final resting place, the very cemetery he helped establish a decade prior, the Riverview Cemetery. Some said it was Ladd's greatest legacy. But his body would only rest there for a short time before a group of grave robbers would dig him up. Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com odyssey. Months after William Ladd died, the United States was faced with one of the worst financial crises in history. The Panic of 1893 was an economic depression that lasted for roughly four years. It upended almost every part of the economy. The collapse of two of the country's largest employers, the Philadelphia and Reading Railroad, as well as the National Cordage Company, led to utter chaos. It was a depression unlike any before. The stock market plunged and panic ensued. Banks shuddered, 
Credit essentially froze, and millions became unemployed. Many failed to feed their families and lost their homes altogether. It would take decades for the country to recover. The ripple effects of the Depression were felt all over America and in Oregon. Jobs were lost across the country, and fortunes were lost across the country. It, 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 it impacted uh, the, the Ladd fortune as well. It was estimated that the Ladd family lost nearly half of their fortune in the economic downturn. William Ladd's widow and children were still financially secure, though, and by all accounts, still extremely rich. Many others were not so fortunate. A man named Daniel Magone had lost everything in the Depression. A fellow named Daniel Magone, who uh, here in Oregon had also come out, uh, you know, back in the 1850s, probably 1860s, and uh, had been initially had some success and then hit some hard times. Magone lost his home and property, but that was only the beginning of the unimaginable hardships he would face. In 1895, Magone witnessed his young daughter drown in the Willamette River. He was unable to save her. Her death, in addition to losing his land, sent Magone spiraling into a deep depression. Uh, so he had entered a very sad time, a depressed time. Some people again questioned, wondered whether he had, was losing his sanity uh, because he started to talk about uh, you know, plots to do things, to get his money back, to find some way to get revenge on those who had taken his, his property away from him. Magone was angry at the wealthy elite, those who had escaped the financial crisis seemingly unscathed. The tycoons, whom he believed, took advantage of the poor to make a quick buck. He was upset at the powers that be, those that controlled things, that had punished him somehow. In 1897, Magone hatched a revenge plot a macabre plan that would involve stealing the body of a prominent banker, William Sargent Ladd. Uh, Mr. Ladd had been dead for four years, um, buried in Riverview. Magone's fantasy of retribution began to take shape. He would demand a ransom in an effort to recover some of what he lost a few years prior. He had came up with this plan to take Mr. Ladd's uh, corpse and to hold it for ransom for $50,000, to ask the family, the Ladd family, to pay $50,000 to get his body back. The first order of business, Magone needed a crew. He surely couldn't do the job alone. So he enlisted the help of several accomplices. One of them was a man named Charles Montgomery, a fishing and drinking buddy of Magone's, who had recently been acquitted of murder. He, too, had been hit hard by the economic depression and sought revenge on the powerful upper class. Also, who was kind of a ne'er-do-well who had a, wanted to get revenge on the powers that be for some reason, uh, enlists him in the plot. And they also get two other people that they hired to be part of this, telling them that he's going to steal the body, but he's going to donate it to, to medical research does not let him in on the whole plot that he's going to hopefully get 50,000 bucks from, from this plan. Before long, the team of four men began plotting. 
They did surveillance on the Riverview Cemetery at nighttime to make sure there were no guards. And there weren't. It seemed like their plan just might work. So one night in April of 1897, the men gathered their tools and set out for the cemetery. But once they got there, and before they could begin, something spooked them. They lost the nerve to follow through and left. A local brickmaker who lived nearby would later tell police that he had seen a group of people leaving the cemetery under suspicious circumstances. He described watching them walk around late at night carrying lanterns. And when he tried to get a better look at what they were up to, they ran away into the darkness. A few weeks later, the men built up the courage to try once more. While what they conspired to do was certainly bold, they were more paranoid this time around. McGone and his accomplice, Charles Montgomery, were convinced that the Ladd family had installed some sort of electric alarm on the gravesite for protection. So Montgomery stole a field telephone from a railroad station to monitor the phone lines. He brought it with him to Riverview Cemetery. Back in that day, they were able to uh, kind of tap into the phone line, uh, which was, would have been some sort of common party line, that evening to see if an alarm went off somewhere and would cause the lads to call the police to say the alarm just went off. So they, they had done some, some good uh, research. Uh, the, there was no alarm, and so there was no need for that, but they didn't know that at the time. While Montgomery tapped the phone line to monitor for any calls to police about suspicious activity in the cemetery, McGone and the other men started digging at Ladd's gravesite. The family had ordered a very beautiful, elaborate headstone from the east. It had not arrived yet, some four years later. All that was there marking his grave was a simple wooden marker with his initials, WSL, on it, marked his grave. With not much more than the moonlight and a few lanterns for illumination, the men worked hastily. McGone was frenzied and several times grabbed his pistol from his pocket and pointed it into the darkness out of sheer paranoia. As they dug deeper into the ground, one of the men's shovels pierced something hard. It was Lad's coffin buried several feet underground. The grave robbers had finally struck their proverbial goal. Once they cleared enough dirt away, the men used a hand-forged knife to pry open the coffin. They peered inside at the body that they believed was their ticket to wealth. Magone then ordered the men to lower a plank down into the casket. They tied a rope around Lad's corpse and pulled it onto the plank. With all their might, they lifted the more than 200 pounds of dead weight up to ground level. There, they wrapped the body in blankets and began their trek out of the cemetery and down a steep hillside to the riverbank. They take what was described as a very well-embalmed, well-preserved Mr. Ladd from his coffin, and they take him with him, carry him uh, through the, the grass, through the trees, through the leaves, down to the river where there's a boat waiting. 
In their hasty escape, the men seemed to have forgotten about the tools they had left behind in the cemetery. They were too fixated on rowing away as fast as they could to a piece of land downriver. There, the group dug a makeshift grave six feet long by three feet deep and reinterred the corpse of William Ladd. And they put him in a very well-hidden, shallow grave. Then they filled the hole with dirt and covered it with leaves until no one could tell the ground had ever been disturbed. And then set about their plan to eventually demand the ransom. Magone had even taken the wooden grave marker from Ladd's original gravesite as proof that he had the body. He figured it might come in handy if police or Ladd's family called his bluff. The morning after the grave robbery, groundskeepers at the Riverview Cemetery discovered the mountain of dirt and the empty casket. Police immediately responded, and the city's best detectives were assigned to the case. After all, this was a big deal. Newspapers had a field day with the crime and dubbed the criminals the ghouls. An article published on May 20th in the Oregonian led with the headline, No Clue to the Ghouls, Little Progress in Search for the Robbers of Mr. Ladd's Body. It went on to say, quote, On the streets yesterday, the affair was the chief subject of discussion, and it was the universal sentiment that no punishment would be too severe for the perpetrators of the atrocity if caught, end quote. In Oregon, the statute for grave robbery in the late 1800s brought a maximum penalty of three years in prison, which newspapers declared inadequate for such a horrible crime. While townspeople gossiped about who could have committed this gruesome act, behind the scenes, police did have one solid clue, a knife that was discovered inside Ladd's coffin, the knife Magone and his men had used to pry it open. It was unique, hand-forged by a Portland blacksmith. They go to the local blacksmith. He remembers who he made it for. Oh, I made that knife, he said. I made it for Daniel Magone. So right away, the jig is up. Detectives tracked down Magone and then Montgomery, who immediately copped to the crime, selling out Magone and the other two accomplices, William Rector and Ed Long. Police arrested all four of them. The Oregonian newspaper reported that Montgomery led detectives right to the shallow grave where they had buried Ladd's body. It was hidden so well under leaves and moss that without Montgomery's guidance, police never would have found it. During the subsequent investigation, it came out that the men had also plotted to steal the body of another prominent Portlander the same night of Ladd's grave robbing. But they ran out of time and were too fearful of getting caught. For stealing Ladd's corpse, the men were charged with illegal disinterment, a crime that carried a punishment of up to three years in prison. I mean, lucky for them, that was not blackmail or ransom or kidnapping yet or extortion because they hadn't even had time to write a note to the Ladd family saying, we've got, your, you know, we've got the body, give us $50,000. Is this one of the more infamous stories in Portland's In, 18, weird in the 1890s, history? this was a huge story of here is the body of Portland's leading citizen, grave robbery, being taken from its casket. And, and the thought was they were going to hold it for ransom again, but they were so uh, awful 
at what they did, so that they left too much evidence. I guess that was the, uh, the good thing for them, was that they were found out quickly. Otherwise, he might have spent longer, longer time in prison. During trial, Charles Montgomery and William Rector both testified against their accomplices. They were sentenced to a short stint in prison. Ed Long, who refused to speak about the crime, was sentenced to two years. During Daniel Magone's trial, he pleaded insanity. His attorney stated that while in custody, Magone was seen running up and down the corridor of the jail, speaking irrationally. The lawyer said that a few years before the crime, Magone's mental health deteriorated after the land he inherited from his father was foreclosed upon by a wealthy businessman. It's important to note that there was never evidence that Magone had any direct dealings with William Ladd. After his land was taken from him, Magone became increasingly worried that he couldn't find work and that his wife and children would die from want. Then came the death of his young daughter, which sent Magone spiraling. But a doctor testified that while Magone did indeed have troubles, he was of sane mind, dispelling any claims of insanity. Magone was convicted, but shortly after, the Supreme Court granted him a new trial. In the late summer of 1898, he went on trial for a second time and was again convicted. Magone's attorney told the court, quote, instead of being sent to the penitentiary and his children branded as those of a felon, he should be sent to the insane asylum where he can be treated for the disease God Almighty has afflicted him with, end quote. On September 13th, Magone was sentenced to two years in prison. By this point, he had already been locked up for 16 months. When asked if he had anything to say in opposition of the sentence, Magone mumbled a few unintelligible sentences. The judge determined Magone was in need of treatment for mental disease and offered at any point to write a letter to prison authorities urging treatment for the inmate. Magone served his time, was released, and lived for another decade. He died in 1914 at the age of 56. As for what happened to the body of William Ladd after the grave robbery, well, his body had been well-preserved thanks to expensive embalming. He was returned to the funeral parlor, where his family made arrangements for another burial. But this time, they made some changes of course, after this incident, the family wanted to make sure there was not another kidnapping. William Sergeant Ladd was placed back in his plot at the Riverview Cemetery, and his grave reinforced with concrete, so no ghouls could ever strike again. On the next episode of Wicked West... The unspoken hint of the sinister, that the fog is coming in and then stopping. A magazine article published in the late 1800s captivates readers. And there was a hole that went straight down into the bluff, but they couldn't see the bottom. It tells the story of a young girl who goes missing inside a deserted lighthouse. There was no evidence of Muriel Trevenard, but a pool of warm red blood. The article led to speculation about whether the lighthouse was haunted, and some say even helped spare it from demolition. 
People literally formed a human chain around it to stop them. But is this ghost story a work of fiction or based on a true story? There are elements to it that seem just unlikely enough to ring true. That's next time on Wicked West. Special thanks to the Oregon Historical Society and Executive Director Carrie Timchuk for their assistance and research on the grave robbing of William Ladd. For more information about the work of OHS, visit ohs.org. Wicked West is a KGW and Vault Studios production. Please subscribe and leave us a rating or review. We have a lot more information about this series, including videos and pictures, on kgw.com slash wickedwest and on the KGW YouTube page. This show is written, produced, and hosted by me, Ashley Korslin. Our audio editor and co-producer is Zachary Carver. Our executive producer is John Tierney. The Vault Studios team includes Will Johnson, Reed Redmond, and Ian Hill. Original artwork by Jeff Patterson and videography by Ken McCormick and Nick Bieber. Digital media by Louisa Anderson and Celeste Ruiz. Marketing and promotion by Jennifer Woodruff, Randy Cobb, and Skylar Stever. Special thanks to KGW General Manager Steve Carter, News Director Greg Retsinas, and the entire KGW staff. If you like this show, check out our other series, Should Be Alive, Urge to Kill, and The Yellow Car, available wherever you listen to podcasts.